The following audio is from LifePoint Church, located in O'Fallon, Missouri. For more information about LifePoint Church, visit us online at thelifepointconnection.com. Everybody adjusted to the time change yet? Now, are you a, the time change is great or the time change is not awesome? This one's okay. I hear a little bit of that. I hear a little, ah, so... I have five kids, and three of them are little enough that they think that the time change is just an opportunity for them to make us sleep less, regardless of which end we're actually on. So I don't get to vote because I'm automatically disqualified for that. So if you're, uh, if you're new here today or you're just joining us for the first time, my name's Caleb. I'm one of the other elders here at LifePoint. Pastor Eric's out today, so I get the privilege of bringing you the word. We're going to be in Acts 21, but it's going to take a little bit to get there. So we have been studying Acts. We hear it referred to as Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. It's really the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Since late summer, we wrapped up chapter 20. Last week, and Pastor Eric did a wonderful job last week helping us recognize what it means to be placed under the call from Jesus to go even to the unknown, into the uncertainty, into what that is like. And so today, today we got a title. If you're the type of person who likes titles, the title of our message today is Courage, a Cause, and Some Company. We're going to talk about the courage that Paul demonstrates on his way to Jerusalem. We're going to talk about the cause and the call that he had that just truly drove him to get there and the company that he took with him along the way. So one of the things we learned last week is that if you say yes to Jesus, which I would plead with you to say yes to Jesus if you have not said yes to Jesus, is that we are invited into some incredibly exciting things. We will be hated by the world. That's awesome, right? Just super exciting. Well, Jesus made this promise in John chapter 15, starting in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Thanks, Jesus. That's encouraging. Further, we saw this last week that Paul understood that, and he's writing and encouraging young Timothy, and he says this in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All right, great. That is an exciting, uplifting way to start the day, right? Everybody is full of joy. We are followers of Jesus. We belong to him. We are bought by him, purchased from his shed blood. And now we know we get to be hated and we get to be persecuted. Awesome. Really and truly, that was something that 
Paul used as a measure because Paul knew that the message he carried, that Jesus came to save sinners, was not popular. And he recognized that if he was doing what he needed to do, following as he needed to follow Jesus, he was going to experience that kind of heartache, that kind of rejection. There was joy. There was an, an anthem to everything he did that was around that. Paul wanted nothing more than people to know Jesus and trust and treasure Jesus for life. So in chapter 1, he's going to start a journey, or 21, we're going to see him start a journey to Jerusalem. That is the end of his life. He's heading to the end of his life. Before we start reading our text, I want to ask a question and get a little participation here this morning. How many of you have had a close friend that was not a relative or a spouse in your life? Anybody? Okay, stand up. Stand up. That way we can keep this a little easier. Wow, look, everybody's participating. That was easy. I should have asked a harder question. All right, how many of you, when you think about that friendship and that person that you're identifying that's not family or a spouse, how many of you have been friends with them for more than 10 years? If it's not been 10 years, go ahead and sit down. All right, how many of you have been friends for 15 years? How many of you have been friends for 20 years? We're starting to age ourselves. How many of you have been friends for 25 years? Anybody had a dear friend for over 30 years? All right, go ahead and have a seat. Give them applause. That matters. Having a friend matters. Having a friendship that lasts for three decades and longer, that's impressive. You know, you think about it today, there are so many different types of relationships that don't make it past two days. We live in a world that says swipe left. So a friendship that lasts that long is amazing. And so I want you today, as we get into our text, to think about friendship. Think about the, the closeness and what it means to, to really have that bond and that tenderness, that knowing and being known, and then what it is to have that taken away. And we need to recognize what is happening as we read the text and the story that we're going to look at today, Acts 21, verse 1. And when he ha we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed in Tyre. And from there the ship was to unload its cargo. It was probably a grain ship. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. Kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. And then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. 
We need to see the actions taking place in that section of text. We need to see that what has just happened is Paul has torn himself away. He's got a group of really 10 guys. Out of those guys, the company he has, some names we might recognize, obviously Luke, who is our our author. But then we have Titus and Timothy as well in this group. So these are some names we're familiar with. They're traveling with Paul. And they have witnessed the goodbye to the church that he loves, the elders that he loves, and now they show up. What do they do as soon as they get off the boat? They go find disciples. What happens when they find disciples? The disciples have a place for them. How many of you, if a traveler, a Christian missionary shows up and he's got nine guys with him, would be like, awesome, come hang out at my house for a week. That is not a little ask. I don't know if you've ever hung out with 10 guys that are all by themselves that have been traveling for a week. I promise that was not just the most pleasant thing in the world to have walk into your house. You knew they were coming, right? So they welcomed them. They're excited. Now, the other thing I want us to think about is that we saw as they left, as those days came to an end, that the families went with them to outside of the city, the wives and the children. It's interesting in the Bible, you never find families segregated and separated when Jesus is the point. What you actually see is a joy to come around together and to be together in the celebration of what Jesus is doing. And that's what's happening here. I wanna ask you, how many of you can remember some kind of Bible story or the story you might have heard from a missionary at some point if you've been around the church from back when you were a kid? Anybody? A lot of hands going up. How, how would it be to be one of these children and you have now got the Apostle Paul, Luke, Timothy, and Titus in your house for seven days around your dinner table talking and giving conversation and sharing what God has done as they have gone along their way. Would that be incredible? Oh, it would be absolutely amazing. Would it change your life and the trajectory of your faith going forward? I think the the answer would be yes. I had the privilege of growing up in a pastor's home and meeting many missionaries. I've had the privilege of meeting many in ministry and weird places and hard places. And I can tell you from when I was little all the way to now at 42, nothing has changed my life more than hearing, seeing the witness of God's faithfulness through those that he calls into faraway and unknown places. Knowing that the God I serve today, here, now, is actively working in a place where they've never heard the name of Jesus. And yet he is busy making himself known. That encourages me. That's exciting. We should recognize that in history, outside of the Bible, so in just general history of the age, no other group, no other sect, no other religion, nowhere would you find or do you see any other group but Christian where wives and children would travel outside of the city like this. Never, ever would you see them kneel down in public and pray. What a testimony. 
There's 10 guys getting on a ship that no doubt they've been trying to arrange to get on that ship. Now they're there, and all of a sudden they have this whole group of people from little kids on up to adults kneeling and praying. Can you imagine the scene? Now, they're at this shore, and there's a lot of activity. I don't know about you, but how many of you in your neighborhood, maybe you're at Walmart, all of a sudden sirens go off, five cop cars show up, you just be like, well, that's interesting. How many of you are like, like my son Nolan, as soon as a helicopter gets close, you gotta go to every window? Can you imagine what it would have been like to be one of these sailors? They've got these 10 guys that have now joined their ship and all these people are praying and saying goodbye on their knees. You talk about an opportunity to witness. How many of us would feel comfortable getting on our knees and praying in public? And how many of us would feel even more comfortable explaining why? That is the reality of what we see. So he is saying bye. He said bye to the elders. Now he's saying bye to this group of believers, these people that he loves. He spent seven days with them. We're gonna start reading more about the journey. Acts 21 verse seven. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. We entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, we don't know what many days is, but it was many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt. He bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. They arrive. Who meets them? The brothers, the disciples, the followers of Jesus. Every stop along the way, and what we're going to understand if you were to go through the rest of Acts, now we'll pause and pivot after next week to start a Christmas series, but this is a journey that gets him to Jerusalem, and from Jerusalem, he spends some time going through some things like a shipwreck that we're familiar with, spending time in prison. He does not have an easy trip the rest of his life. This is part of it, and everywhere he goes, there are those who follow Jesus, who are disciples of Jesus Christ. And they're welcoming him. They're excited. The other thing is that they always have a place for these brothers that come in to stay. There's always that community. I think that is valuable and worth pointing out. But a big moment here that we might miss because we like to miss the ordinary and the obvious because, well, ordinary and it's obvious. Philip, the evangelist. Now recognize he says this so that we understand that this is not Philip the Apostle. They are distinctly two different people. More importantly, this Philip the Evangelist is one of the seven. Now in September, I preached an entire message on Philip. He was an ordinary guy. An ordinary guy with an extraordinary Savior named Jesus Christ, who because of the dispersion, the persecution, what was happening. He left and went into Samaria, and he had this awesome ministry. I mean, people are getting saved. People are healed. 
crowds are coming around. He has guys that are good at magic that want to know his trick. I mean, it's crazy. And in the middle of this booming ministry, the Holy Spirit shows up and says, hey, go for a walk on a desert road that almost no one ever uses. Philip was like, cool, that sounds awesome. He's on the road doing exactly what he was told to do because the reality is obedience is one of the most beautiful things that a follower of Jesus can do in response to the call and the cause that he's given us. So he obeys. He went on a walk. He met a dude. This dude is just riding along. He's reading the Bible. He's trying to understand it. Holy Spirit says, catch up to the chariot. So he catches up to the chariot. Once he gets there, hey, can I explain that to you? How many of us would feel that comfortable? I just left in an incredible ministry. I'm going for a walk because the Holy Spirit told me to. Hey, there's a, there's a chariot. I'm going to get on there and tell them about Jesus. He does, and guess what? He explains salvation beautifully from the book of Isaiah. Well, wait a minute. Isaiah is the Old Testament. Well, it would help us as Christians, I think, sometimes to recognize that the Old Testament is simply the Old Testament about Jesus, and the New Testament is simply the New Testament of Jesus. They are both about Jesus. The man says, hey, why shouldn't I be baptized? Philip's like, good idea. There's water. Let's do it. They go down. He gets baptized. Comes up out of the water. Poof, he's teleported some 20 miles away. That's ordinary. This is Philip, the evangelist. This is the home that they are at. This is the place that they are. And he has had another encounter. The last time that we would witness Philip seeing Paul, he was called Saul. And he would be there on that day that Saul stood and orchestrated and oversaw the brutal killing of likely his best friend, Stephen. He Saul stood and he held the coats in approval and with applause as men brought stones to stone Stephen. Saul witnessed as Stephen was on his knees and then looking into heaven and seeing Jesus standing at the right hand of God, that was the man that Philip understood and knew that is now in his living room. Because the power of Jesus Christ is the power of reconciliation regardless of the offense. The reality is Paul has a ministry that has been given to him by Jesus himself. When he was interrupted on his road to Damascus, Jesus didn't say, stop picking on my people. He said, Saul, why do you persecute me? Philip knew. He knew his heart was changed. Even though this happened, there was a reality. I want you to say this with me. Jesus changes people, period. There's no question. If Jesus is real in your life, he will bring change through your life. That is the power of reconciliation. That is what he does. Jesus alone can put the murderer and the victim into the same kingdom. That's Jesus that we love and serve. Can you imagine what it would have been like to listen to those conversations? 
what it would have been like for Timothy and Titus, young men who only met Paul after his conversion, to listen to Philip talk about the one who caused all the persecution, who drove so much of the the just absolute heartache that was happening. And, And this is a guy that they admire as a father figure. And yet this was his life before Jesus. Any of you here willing to say my life before Jesus isn't something I was proud of? Paul never let that stop him. In fact, in fact, they enjoyed fellowship. Now, how do we apply that? How does that work? Well, I, I'm guessing, I'm gonna go out on a limb here, it might make some people uncomfortable, but here a couple weeks ago in this nation, we had an election. And there were people that voted to rejoice in the brutal butchering of babies. There were people who recently celebrated the disgusting perversion of homosexuality that is exactly the opposite of God's design. There are those who are fighting tooth and nail to legalize the mutilation of healthy children for their sick sexual desire. It is absolutely the evidence of darkness. But how many of you are willing to love the person who voted blue or red or the other way around? How many of you would welcome that person into your living room? That is hard to do. How many of you would be willing to believe that because of the power of Jesus Christ, those who don't recognize what sin is are then made aware And because of that awareness, they repent. And through that repentance, they turn and go to Jesus. And you would say, you're welcome at my table anytime. That would be hard to do. Let's take it away from that. Let's get politics out of the place completely. I have been in some form of ministry for over two decades. Whether that be leading as a pastor, youth pastor, ministry leader, And one of the things that I have had to endure has been this idea of people that believe they do not need to forgive anybody. Sadly, I've also spent almost a decade and a half in HR, in the public world. That's a whole other nightmare. The reality is, I have encountered so many people who have a grievance, an offense, and they will not release it to Jesus Christ, rather they hold on to it. And why they hold on to it is because they feel like they have a justified reason to not forgive the other person. And as they hold that offense, they hold on to it, it rots. It starts to decay in their soul. They start to smell. And any time somebody does even a little thing, it blows up. Ever seen that happen? The next thing you know, they start talking about the offense and why it's justified and they have this self-fulfilling reason to hold on to it. And you know what happens with humans? They act like humans. Man, I've been offended too. I mean, that smells really bad, but when you're around it for a little while, it doesn't stink that much. And they start talking about their offense. And there's this whole little huddle of pity party with no room for the light and love of Jesus Christ to bring about reconciliation. Why? Because humans are humans, and without Jesus 
changing people, change never happens. Decay sets in. We see this all the time. I wonder how many of you would be in a place where you're saying to yourself, I just can't. I just can't. Could I, could I encourage you to recognize that Jesus is ready to help? He would love to step into that space. He would love to help you understand what forgiveness truly brings. He has very, very tender hands. He has a very soft heart. And I can say with full confidence, there is nothing you've experienced that is greater offense than him. When he hung on the cross, naked and beaten to a point that his own mother could not recognize him, his blood spilled out, a crown of thorns in his head, and he looked at the crowd that chanted, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, and he prayed with his mouth and the power of who he was, he said, Father, forgive them. That Jesus wants to come into your life and produce radical change through reconciliation because he loves you and he loves them. That is the truth. So now, there's another thing that happened there. A guy named Agabus showed up. Agabus is one of those guys that when he rolls into town, you're like, how many of you have that person? If I'm that person for you, don't say it out loud. The reality is he shows up and it's like, gosh, why is he here? What did he show? I mean, last time we see Agabus on the scene, he is foretelling, he's doing what a prophet does. He's declaring the truth that God has given him to declare. And so he is saying, hey, there's gonna be a famine and it's gonna be bad. It's gonna be really bad. And he was right. He's consistently right. That's a problem when it's bad news, right? Now, Paul is actively on his way to Jerusalem and a part of the problem or part of the reason rather is that he is carrying an offering with the intent to help because they are under such constraint due to the accuracy of what Agabus declared last time. And now he says, Paul, you're gonna be bound. You're gonna be captured and turned over. The elders said, don't go. Paul said in the early part of chapter 20, the Holy Spirit has told me this is what I'll await, imprisonment. I will be suffering for the cause of Christ, but he has courage to face that. The brothers are encouraging through the Spirit, hey, don't go to Jerusalem. Now he's got Agabus here, and it's like, man, if you go, you're getting tied up. You're getting bound. This isn't cool. How would we respond? I think it's fair I would certainly not put myself in a position to say, I am such an incredible believer that I would just be full of joy at that report. I think how we would respond would be like, oh, wait a minute, maybe I'm missing something. We would slow down in our forward obedience towards Jesus Christ for the sake of worry and concern. We would hear the messages from our brothers and sisters and we would say, they're right, Jesus, they know better than you. But that's not what we see at all in the Apostle Paul. Rather, what we see is that he rightly understands each of these messages, not because of fear, but as encouragement that he is obeying. Because where did we start? If you belong to Jesus, 
you will be hated and persecuted. Well, if that's what's waiting for me, I must be doing something right. Let's go. Paul has an answer. Acts 21, 12 through 16. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. We could learn so much right there. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. They heard and saw the message. They wept and tried to plead with him. And Paul says, why? Why are you doing this? The word there, when he says, breaking my heart, it's only used here in the classic Greek. It's not found in other areas of the New Testament, and it is a word that means to be utterly crushed and pulverized. Now, how many of you have heard the opinion of the Apostle Paul that he's kind of a spiritual bully? Anybody ever heard that before? He's kind of a tough guy. He's kind of one of those. What are we seeing here? We're seeing an absolute tender response to people that he loved. Paul was a humble man. Paul was a tender man. Paul loved the brothers and sisters he had in Jesus Christ. This was not something that he did out of some self-glorifying process. This was because he had courage, he had a cause, and he had company with him that were watching him every step of the way. He's not persuaded. Why? Well, I would wonder, I would wonder if us, if we knew this was waiting for us, if we would go into an environment and be like Paul, hey, you're, you're a follower of Jesus. You follow the way. You know him, the guy that got resurrected, ascended on high. Yeah, I do. Let me tell you about him. He's amazing. Would that be our response or would it be instead a response more similar to Peter where we have the words of a coward and denial? Paul is setting an example why? Why is Paul setting this example? Why is it so important to him? Because the reality is, the clear reality is, he knows the cause that he has, and we need to remember some things about the Apostle Paul. He's been stoned. He's likely died. The Christians gathered around him and prayed. He got up from being stoned. How many of us would feel great after that? And instead of saying, listen, I need a vacation, I need some me time. I really got to recover because, you know, I just, I don't have the brain space for it. I, I, literally, what did he do? He got up and went back into the city. What did he start doing? Preaching. Hey, Paul, don't you realize you just got stoned for that? Cool, let's try it again. Why? Because Jesus matters most to Paul. That's why. That's why. And so here's a guy. He's been stoned. He lived through that. He's had all kinds of persecution and hardship, but we also need to recognize that when he wrote, at this time he would have written Romans, he would have written the letters to the Corinth church, and so he talks about the reality that he has met Jesus. We know that, the road to Damascus, he met Jesus. But he has been caught up 
says to the third heaven, he has seen what he is not permitted to write about. I truly believe the Apostle Paul recognizes in a level that is beyond what we might comprehend that the sure and evident hope in Jesus is that death on earth is his forever presence with Christ and the joy that awaits him drives him forward. Oh, that we could grab a hold of that kind of tenacity to recognize that nothing in this world compares to the glory, the majesty, and the beauty of Jesus and the heaven he has prepared for us. That's it, that's it. That's what's there. You may have seen that he had, you know, a lot of similarities to Jesus' final journey. There's a reason for that because he's obeying a one who has set a pattern for him to follow. You also saw that they met a early disciple. Now, you might be reading a translation that says old. Unfortunately, that would be inaccurate. It would not be a good translation. Makes it feel like this is some old guy. Man, we met this crusty Christian. He told us all about this stuff. That's not what it means. It means early. You gotta realize The resurrection and the ascension was not that long ago at this point. It's not like it's hundreds of years past. It's near recent history. This was an early disciple. Imagine what the stories were. Imagine he could have been there on the day of Pentecost. What would it have been like to be in that crowd when the Holy Spirit fell, when Peter proclaimed the gospel and you encountered Jesus for the first time? Man, how incredible would that have been? What else does it tell us? It tells us that there are those who were there at the beginning of the church, the beginning of the way, that are still faithful, that are still following, in spite of all the persecution. They have no fanfare. They have no real history for us, except that they are faithful men and women that are continuing to do what Jesus has called us to do day in and day out. I just can't imagine how much learning in that time took place. Hopefully, you're still with me on the journey here. We're going towards our arrival. And so, Paul is about to have what I would argue may be one of the coolest moments of his life to this point. Acts 21, 17 through 20. Yes. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. The brothers received him gladly. Hopefully you've noticed that theme. This is the fourth time we've heard this now. Just in this short little section, everywhere he goes, they're excited that Paul is there. How much change had to happen for that to be a reality? What did we say earlier? Jesus changes people, period. That's right. Hey, I can't wait for Paul to get here. You mean you can't wait for the persecutor of the church? (coughs) No. The reality is he is a different man and they know it. They're excited about it. What would that have been like? What would that have felt like? 
And he shows up, and what does he get ready to do? Does he start giving a report? Man, you should have heard the message I preached. It was fire. It was amazing. I do so incredibly well with any audience now. Man, you, you have got, I, I need, you just got to give me an audience. and let. Did he do that? Not at all. Paul never self-promotes. Men of God do not self-promote because it's not about us. The economy of God has no room for him to share his glory with us. It is all about him. Instead, he gives a detailed report that is God-centered. He gives a report of what God has done through the ministry that God has given him. And it is not short. It is not an executive summary with some bullet points. So you get the highlights. It is detail after detail. So I would imagine it was something like this that he began to unpack with them. He would tell them about God's work everywhere. He would tell them about Salamis, Pathos, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, Ephesus, and all the miracles that took place. He might even say stories about things like what happened there in the middle of chapter 20. He's preaching because he does things long form. Kid falls asleep, falls out of third story window. His name's Eutychus. Guys, I was preaching. A dude fell asleep, died. I went out, resurrected him, went back and started preaching again. Like it's just, yeah, it's just a regular Tuesday. This was Paul. And they were delighted. They were delighted. God-centered preaching led to God-centered reporting that was met with God-centered praise, and that's how it should always be. Sadly, it's not. Sadly, we want it to be about us. We want it to be focused on me and what I did. When we sing, we want to talk about us and not about God. When we proclaim, we want to proclaim what we have seen happen, what we have been a part of, not what Jesus has done. It's all Jesus, not us. You are invited to participate, and at best, you get a mention. The reality is the glory of Jesus is first and foremost. He's encouraged, and he is encouraged to hear something that was near and dear to his heart. I mentioned it earlier. In Romans 9, Paul wrote these words, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He loved his Jewish brothers and sisters. He says here, I would give up salvation if I knew that they would come to a knowledge of Jesus. And what did he just hear? Brother, you would not believe the thousands, the thousands who now believe. Would that cause you excitement? How many of you would be overjoyed to hear that? I don't know about you, I, I pray this for my children, that they would know Jesus. I have five of them. I want eternity with them. I want them to know Jesus. I've gotten to witness that happen. I've gotten to witness that with friends and family as well. And you know what? There is nothing more exciting 
than knowing that Jesus has called a soul to himself and made it his own. Wow, forever, forever you belong in the hands of Jesus. This had to be exciting. And it takes us to where we're gonna wrap up today. But we're gonna read a passage that's a little confusing. But basically what we're gonna learn, just so you get it in case we lose you as we read it, Paul is going to encounter some Jews that aren't happy that he's there. He's going to pay for a haircut or two or three or four. And by doing that, he's going to start a riot. So just in case you wondered if their world was crazy compared to ours, buying haircuts, riot. Kind of where we are. Acts 21, 21 through 26. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. It was probably a Nazarite vow. Take these men, purify yourself along with them, pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads And thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we sent a letter, we looked at that earlier in Acts, we sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. And Paul took them in, and the next day he purified himself, And along with them, went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. What in the world is happening? Well, first of all, isn't that true? Paul hates the law. He didn't respond with any kind of argumentative fight. He didn't push back. He didn't rebuke James. Well, well, I mean, I mean, you know, he's, well, how can he do this? How could he even possibly do this? He's listening to their plan. He's finally arrived at Jerusalem. He's brought this incredible offering. How could they ask him to do that which he is so against? How terrible. Scholars get really, really wound up around this. I love reading it. You, you read like I do, you've got, you know, 9, 10, 11 different commentaries, different people thinking about things, and man, there are those, they're going to go over to this side, kind of like here in America where we pick red and blue, they go over to this side, and they're like, he's in sin, he shouldn't have done this, this is shame, this brings the end to his credibility, it's terrible, this is amazing. Look at what he does. Oh, we should applaud this. How wonderful, how awesome. I come here. This is just me. This is me speculating as one of your pastors. It's almost as if it's not important to Luke for his readers to worry about because he says nothing else. Huh. I think if it was as big a deal as the scholars want to make it, God might have given us more understanding of it from his word. Nothing tells us about the Bible better than the Bible. The key understanding of why is important. He has had this work with the Gentiles. He's been infamous. He has accomplished incredible things through Jesus. 
They know about that. But there are these men who don't like that. They're not okay with that. He used to burn our churches down. He used to imprison our brothers and sisters. That's not okay. He doesn't get to go have a ministry. If you've been around church for any length of time, you've encountered those voices. You don't deserve the grace of Jesus making much in your life. I'm here to judge you. Garbage. Absolute garbage. When Jesus shows up, he changes people, period, and he will do what he will do with whom he chooses to do it with. You don't get a say. You don't get a say. The reality is, it's all lies. It's all lies. Paul never condemned the law. Never. Paul never forbid them circumcising their, their sons. In fact, Paul took Timothy, wasn't a little guy, and said, you know, you've got to be circumcised. That was, that was a moment. If this guy is what they say, then how come that happened? Timothy's right there with him. The reality is, and this happens often, is we don't like what we see because we're frustrated by what we see, or maybe we've wanted something like that. But really what it is, is Paul understood this, and if you take notes, write this down. The law is not a ladder by which we climb into the lap of God's favor. The law is not a ladder by which we climb into the lap of God's favor. It is not salvific. There is nothing we can do to gain salvation. Our righteousness is in Christ alone. There is no other option. There is no other way. It is Jesus and his shed blood calling us and purchasing us for himself that brings about our righteousness. Paul understood that. Now, there are many, there are many who would say, I think it was wrong, like I said, he shouldn't have done this. Uh, I mean, how dare he, how dare he do this after all that he's preached? We don't see that. I think what really should be understood is what Paul wrote to the church in Corinth around chapter nine. You can go look it up. I believe it starts around verse 19. But to summarize, he says, I became all things to all men for the sake of the gospel. The sake of the gospel. What was the deepest desire that Paul had? For everyone to know that Jesus came to save sinners. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel. Sadly, those verses have been distorted and abused in such appalling ways that would-be Christians are now actually in bondage to their own freedom. They leverage the freedom of grace as a license to sin and become a stumbling block to many because they don't understand that it was not about them, it was about the gospel. It was not about Paul and his preference, it was about the gospel. That's a whole other sermon. I won't even get on my soapbox. He agrees. He agrees with the plan to go in. Now, this was expensive. He had to pay their offering. It is said in history that oftentimes those in political power at this time would pay for these Nazarite offerings to maintain favor with the Jews. Wasn't cheap. He pays for four haircuts. The reality is what they do during that process is for 30 days under their vow, they cannot shave their heads, they cannot have any kind of haircut or razor touch them. 
at the end of that period of time of purification, which we read about, they would shave their heads, they would cut their beards, and they would burn that hair. That was symbolic. That was the process. That was what was happening. Paul goes along with it. There's a conversation that happened. We read it. It's likely a conversation between James and Paul. Others are listening. There are leaders there. Important thing to remember, this was a conversation about a man whose life was in jeopardy. If you're a leader, if you're a man who leads your home, if you're a wife who leads alongside your husband with your husband for your home, you have to think about the fact that we live in a world that hates us. We live in a world that says, Christian, no more. You may be aware just as recently as this last week that Nike decided that you cannot put the name of Jesus or the name of Christ on any of their licensed jerseys for the fancy soccer games that are about to be played. But you know who you can? You can put Allah in anything Islam can be worn in broadcast. Why? Because they can't handle doing what they have to do with Jesus. Because Jesus is who he says he is, and they don't like it. They don't like it at all. And the reality is that's the world you live in. You need to recognize those two men had a conversation. Paul, out of honor and humility, said yes. He went in and he did what he was going to do. He paid the cost that he said he would pay. Haircuts were purchased. And the verses that follow, which we won't read today, he's about to start a riot. You can figure that out. Read that on your own. A few closing thoughts to consider as the band starts to come back up and get in place. Paul knew that this journey would end his life on earth. He knew it was the beginning of an end. He was saying bye for the last time. He said, you'll never see my face again on this earth. How many of us are ready for those kind of goodbyes? What we might also need to note is that he would go on to write some of the most influential books of the Bible. It was only after this, after the riot, after the imprisonment, after everything else that he writes Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, all written during the next few years of Paul's mostly imprisoned life. He said bye to dear friends and trying to be helpful. He's about to start a riot. But he is excited and he is eager and he has shown courage for Christ's cause and the company along the way has seen the integrity of his way every step that he has taken. It's a reality that we are called to live to. So what about you today, Christian? What about you and your walk? Would you eagerly say goodbye forever to dear friends to take the gospel to the edge of the unknown? been over 30 years, but you will never see my face again because I need to tell somebody about Jesus. They hate Jesus and I might die. Can we say that? Are we ready to say that? Are you ready to be persecuted and imprisoned for Jesus? Are you ready for the day that is certainly coming, even in this land where you're standing in the checkout line and because somebody saw a post on social media where you put a verse, the police are involved and you're going to prison. It's happened in the last two years as close as our neighbors to the north. The reality is the world 
hate the hope of Jesus. But we have the joy of Jesus and we must share it no matter the cost. Heaven waits, heaven waits. If you cannot answer those questions with, yes, I'm ready, yes, I'll go, yes, I have courage, yes, I see the cause, yes, I want others to go with me, then maybe you should spend some time in response to the Holy Spirit out of obedience. You could be here today. There's some here today, maybe for the first time, you know nothing of Jesus. You don't even know why we do all of this about some dead guy. Well, guess what? I have great news. Jesus is not dead. He is alive. He did not just raise from the dead. He ascended on high, and his word is true, and it says that when he ascended on high, he set captives free. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you're in bondage to sin. You are certainly destined to hell, but today can be the day that joy is forever yours and eternity with Christ in his presence is forever secured because he loves you. His grace is sufficient. Please don't leave here today not knowing who Jesus is. Paul is unshakable. He's unshakable because he knows the truth. He's unshakable because he recognizes that these words are true. So I leave you with these beautiful verses of promise. These were promises that Paul wrote because Paul had experienced it and he had seen it. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect if it is God who justifies, who is to condemn? This is Jesus. Does he mean that much to you? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who raised, he's at the right hand of God and he indeed is interceding for us. If you belong to Jesus, he's already prayed for you today. His prayers are answered 100% of the time. Man, do you know the hope that Paul had because this truth was his reality. Don't sit here today, don't go out of here today wondering if it's real. You can have this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul, don't go. You're going to be bound. Paul, you're going to die. Paul, don't go. I'm going. For the name and the glory of Jesus, I'm going. This is why. This is why. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. I love you guys.